This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on atrial fibrillation. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Atrial fibrillation carries an overall prevalence of about 1%. The prevalence increases with age from about 0.5% at 50 years to 10% at 80. And this condition can cause serious complications such as heart failure and stroke. So how should we diagnose and manage patients with atrial fibrillation? To tell us, we have on the line Professor Greg Lipp, who's Price Evans Chair of Cardiovascular Medicine at the University of Liverpool and consultant cardiologist at the Liverpool Heart and Chest Hospital. So Greg, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking you, what exactly is atrial fibrillation? Uh, thanks, Kieran. Atrial fibrillation, as you say, is the commonest heart rhythm problem and is often perceived as this irregular heart rhythm uh, that is uh, common with increasing age and also various cardiovascular risk factors. This is a cardiac rhythm uh, disorder where the atria, uh, instead of having a regular and efficient contraction in synchrony with the ventricle, the atria have this irregularity, uh, chaotic irregularity in contractions. And this has a number of consequences because compared to the normal heart rhythm, which is sinus rhythm, the, the fact that atrial function is reduce in atrial fibrillation, this has a reduction in the cardiac output. Hence, some patients will experience the, what I call hemodynamic sequelae, for example, fatigue or uh, breathlessness on exertion. Uh, there's also the irregularity, which can lead to the sensation of palpitations. But perhaps most serious is if the atria are not contracting uh, in an efficient manner, there is uh, stasis within the atria leading to clots forming, hence the risk of stroke and systemic thromboembolism. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Tell us, how should we diagnose and assess patients with atrial fibrillation? Uh, well, that is very important because uh, we need early detection with a view to avoiding the complications related to atrial fibrillation, such as atrial fibrillation-related stroke. We do have a problem here because about a third of patients with atrial fibrillation have no symptoms. Uh, other patients may well experience, as mentioned before, uh, very non-specific symptoms like fatigue, reduced exercise tolerance, some would have palpitations and breathlessness. And in a sense, this has uh, opened the debate whether or not we should be screening for patients with atrial fibrillation. These can be, this can be done uh, quite simply because bear in mind that many patients with atrial fibrillation are um, uh, elderly and may well have other cardiovascular conditions. They would therefore be attending their general practitioner or other healthcare professional uh, on, for checkups. And what was done in uh, the SAFE studies, the screening for atrial fibrillation in the elderly study, which was done in primary care, uh, simple pulse palpation uh, followed by co uh, confirmation with an ECG if an irregular pulse is present uh, can, can, as an opportunistic screening method, uh, 
uh, can pick up patients with atrial fibrillation, even though they are asymptomatic. Now, having said that, the SAFE study was done um, quite a long time back, and today we are in the era of smart technology. We do have smart devices, uh, which you can uh, link to your smartphone and pick up an ECG. We're also in the era of um, wearables like watches or, or smart bands, um, and these can also pick up uh, abnormal heart rhythms like atrial fibrillation, and therefore you can also have a record on, on the linked phone which you can use for the general practitioner to make the confirmed diagnosis. So from very simple things like pulse palpation, if there's an appropriate history, uh, and if there's a referral to hospital, you could also have ECG monitors. Uh, nowadays at the population level, there's things like um, smartware and smart technology, which improve the pickup regard to uh, atrial fibrillation in the population. Thank you. And should everybody with atrial fibrillation have an echo? Um, well, um, the echocardiogram is helpful to provide uh, an understanding of the underlying cardiac structure and function. Now, it depends for the assessment. Most patients uh, should have an echocardiogram, particularly young patients with atrial fibrillation who uh, are newly diagnosed or where we are considering what is called rhythm control strategy. That is either a cardioversion or an ablation because you wish to have a look to see, assess the cardiac structure and function. For the purposes of uh, assessment with a view to the risk of stroke, an echocardiogram is not obligatory if there are already clinical risk factors that already indicate that stroke prevention is required. However, as mentioned, uh, in a newly diagnosed atrial fibrillation patient, especially if, if there's a referral to a cardiology clinic, I would say that most cardiologists would like to do an echocardiogram to get an insight into the uh, structure and function of the heart. Okay, thank you. And, and would they do a transthoracic or a transesophageal echo, I wonder? Oh, well, most cardiologists uh, would do a, a transthoracic echocardiogram. The transesophageal echocardiogram is a bit more invasive, but it does provide some additional insights, again, uh, into um, the, the, um, the heart. Where, for example, you can actually visualize stasis uh, within the atria. Uh, this is a phenomenon called spontaneous echo contrast. You can also get a um, really good look at uh, cardiac structure, uh, for example, looking at the, uh, the valves. Uh, and of course, you also get uh, able to image the, uh, the aorta, because uh, if you're assessing for stroke, for example, uh, complex aortic plaque on the uh, aorta is a very important predictor for the risk of stroke. Okay, thank you. And last question on diagnosis. What are the common pitfalls in diagnosis, would you say? The problem uh, with regard to diagnosis is the fact that atrial fibrillation is very often asymptomatic. And um, especially if you have a patient with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation or intermittent atrial fibrillation, um, only one in 12 episodes of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation are actually symptomatic. So Many of these patients may well have underlying um, episodes of atrial fibrillation, but not be aware of it. And in the presence of stroke risk factors, the sad thing is the first time they're actually presented and the, presenting and the atrial fibrillation is diagnosed, 
is uh, when they sustain a complication such as an AF-related stroke or they present with heart failure. Now, the pitfalls really is to have an awareness, particularly in high-risk uh, groups of patients, certainly the elderly patients, those with risk factors such as hypertension, heart failure, diabetes, previous myocardial infarction, certainly when they come up for a review, very simple, uh, check the pulse, if it's irregular, confirm the diagnosis with an ECG. We also, if they do come up for checkups, there are also other devices, like for example, some blood pressure machines uh, that can also pick up an irregular pulse. And we uh, mentioned before some of the smart technology, which also gives you a uh, one lead ECG, but just by, for example, gripping uh, part of a, um, it's, it's almost like a, a, a device that looks like a stick, for example, and then you can actually record ECG, or you put your thumb on two uh, uh, so, um, uh, plates on a device, and then you can also pick up a one lead ECG. And if it's irregular and it's classical atrial fibrillation, uh, I think that's where we need to be um, acting on it. Okay, thank you. Uh, let's move on to management. How should we manage patients with atrial fibrillation? Uh, well, the management of atrial fibrillation very often has been perceived to be uh, complicated. Do bear in mind with atrial fibrillation patients, they can present to uh, different healthcare practitioners. They can present to their general practitioner. Uh, and as mentioned before, they may well be asymptomatic. They may well present uh, in the setting of an emergency setting to the <clears throat> emergency room where they are seen by a casualty consultant or, or a triage nurse. They may well be presenting to a surgeon uh, in the perioperative setting. They may well present to the acute medical care unit and seen by non-cardiologists. They may well present, of course, to the cardiologist. And even within the cardiology department, there's the, for example, it may present in the setting of an acute coronary uh, syndrome by an interventional cardiologist. And of course, there's the specialist cardiology arrhythmia service. And of course, uh, the patient at the center to all this, um, they are seen by different healthcare professionals and they may well be getting information from either the general practitioner, the non-cardiologist, hospital consultant, and of course the cardiologist. And it's important we have a, a streamlined management approach to atrial fibrillation that is consistent across the whole patient journey or the whole patient pathway. We can address this uh, quite simply. And I would say it's as simple as ABC. Uh, and what is ABC or the ABC pathway? Well, A is a voice stroke or A is anticoagulation. And basically the default is to offer stroke prevention to patients with atrial fibrillation unless they are low risk. So the first is to assess stroke risk. And we have the chads vas score, uh, which is an established stroke risk stratification scheme, which is good to initially identify the low risk atrial fibrillation patients who do not need antithrombotic therapy. Uh, the low risk uh, chads vas patients are those with a chads vas score zero in males or one in females. If they're, if they're uh, these patients do not need antithrombotic therapy. Stroke prevention uh, should be offered to everyone else. Stroke prevention means oral anticoagulation, whether offered as well-managed warfarin with a good time in therapeutic range, usually above 70%. Or in these days, with the use of the NOAPs, the non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulants, or sometimes called DOACs, direct oral anticoagulants, and they should be given in the uh, appropriate dosing 
according to the prescribing label. So uh, that's A, a Y stroke, A or anticoagulation. Let's turn to the B of the ABC. Well, what is B? B is better symptoms. And this refers to the patient-centered, symptom-directed uh, management of atrial fibrillation uh, to improve symptoms, whether with rate control or rhythm control. So in other words, we either control the heart rate or control the rhythm, as mentioned earlier, this is either with, for example, cardioversion or electrophysiological physiology procedures like catheter ablation, because we are largely trying to manage the patient's symptoms. And hence, uh, depending on the patient uh, and depending on the symptoms, we decide on rate control or rhythm control. So that's the B of the ABC. So let's turn to C. C is cardiovascular and comorbidity uh, management. And why is that? We do recognize that atrial fibrillation is associated with complications uh, such as stroke and heart failure and uh, dementia, um, but many, very often this is in association with cardiovascular risk factors. We also tend to forget that atrial fibrillation itself, even though it increases the risk of stroke, there's also an independent increase in the risk of mortality. And if you look at the mortality associated with atrial fibrillation, only one in 10 is related to stroke. In contrast, uh, seven out of 10 is cardiovascular. So it's important to address all the cardiovascular risk factors and comorbidities. So what do I mean by that? The cardiovascular risk factors, good control hypertension, um, and uh, managing diabetes, proactive management of vascular disease and heart failure with appropriate uh, uh, prevention strategies. That's the lifestyle aspects of atrial fibrillation management. That includes uh, the um, proactive uh, management of, of obesity uh, with weight reduction, reducing alcohol intake, smoking cessation, regular exercise. Uh, and last but not least, don't forget the patient uh, psychological morbidity. It is pretty well documented how patients with atrial fibrillation have higher anxiety uh, and uh, that needs to be addressed as well. So if uh, the patient pathway includes management and A and B and C, you can almost say atrial fibrillation management is as easy as A, B, C. Thank you very much for that uh, comprehensive answer. Uh, um, so many questions, really. We could do lots and lots of podcasts on atrial fibrillation alone. One, one question, the CHAD-VAS score. To tell us about that in more detail. What type of things does it, it, it look at? Well, in terms of uh, assessing the risk for stroke, uh, well, as a population basis, atrial fibrillation increases the risk of stroke fivefold. However, that risk is not homogenous. It depends on the presence or absence of various uh, stroke risk factors. Now, in the literature, there are loads of uh, risk factors for stroke in atrial fibrillation. Um, and the more common and the more validated stroke risk factors have been put into risk stratification schemes, uh, such as um, the CHADS-VAS score. Now, what does the acronym stand for? Well, the C is, stands for uh, con um, congestive heart failure. And this refers to recent decompensated heart failure, irrespective of the ejection fraction, or if asymptomatic, the presence of moderate to severe 
left ventricular dysfunction on cardiac imaging. What is the H in Chad's verse? H refers to hypertension, and that's either history of hypertension or uncontrolled blood pressure. And uh, we we've certainly have evidence that even a history of hypertension uh, independently increases the risk of ischemic stroke. And of course, uh, with hypertension, what may be well-controlled hypertension today isn't necessarily well-controlled hypertension in a few months' time. The A, uh, well, we have um, the age uh, as the A, and age is a powerful driver of stroke risk. So age 65 to 74 gets one point, age 75 and above gets two points. Uh, D refers to diabetes, and this is either type 1 or type 2 diabetes. Uh, and certainly, um, it's uh, in terms of the discussion whether or not uh, it depends which whether type 2 or type 1 diabetes is more important. Equally, both do contribute to the highest stroke risk. Uh, S refers to previous stroke. Now, this therefore refers to a secondary prevention population, we do know that prior stroke is a powerful driver of uh, subsequent risk of recurrent stroke. Then the V. Uh, v stands for vascular disease, and you could refer to this as significant vascular disease. In the original validation studies, it referred to previous myocardial infarction um, or peripheral artery disease. Now the uh, diagnostic capabilities are all much better improved. And what we have seen recently in literature is if there's evidence of significant coronary artery disease on cardiac imaging, this is also contributory to that uh, one point on the V criteria. And then the, um, the A, I mentioned is already age 65 to 74. Then we go into SC. SC refers to sex category, in other words, female sex. And we now have the, uh, evidence that um, female sex is more a risk modifier rather than a risk factor. In other words, there is a age dependency to this because females age under 65 and no other risk factors, there's no excess of stroke risk in the atrial fibrillation patients. However, females age over 65 or if there's one or more stroke risk factors, being female adds to the risk. So it's more risk modifier. But you could uh, equally ask uh, if we just ignore the female criteria, female risk criteria, does that help actually change our approach? Well, actually, uh, we do know from uh, pub many published series that uh, female patients with atrial fibrillation tend to be undertreated. It is important when it comes to the discussion and counseling with the patient on, uh, with regard to their stroke risk, and if the female sex criteria is ignored, uh, one would tend to underestimate their potential stroke risk. So it's important uh, if you're offering stroke prevention to female patients, uh, we do not discount the SC criteria in the CHASVASCO because H over 65, and if there's another stroke risk factor, uh, it's important that uh, uh, the, uh, the patients are, uh, female patients are made aware that by being female, there's already an extra risk on top of male patients uh, because of their age and the other risk factors. Complementary to the stroke risk assessment, uh, which is the Chad's Vasco, uh, many of the guidelines also um, uh, uh, refer to bleeding risk assessment, and this is important in, uh, when considering anticoagulation therapy for stroke prevention. And bleeding risk assessment 
uh, we have also the Hasblad score. And now the, the Hasblad score is a bleeding risk assessment tool, which in a sense has been misused by the ill-informed. It's important to emphasize what is a bleeding risk assessment for. It is to draw attention to modifiable bleeding risk factors, for example, uncontrolled blood pressure, label INRs if there is a patient on warfarin, uh, the concomitant use of non-steroidals or antiplatelets in an anticoagulated patient, for example. Now, you address the modifiable bleeding risk factors, then in terms of healthcare professionals trying to make decisions about when you wish to bring back the patient for a review or not, well, the Hasblad score is an objective measure uh, where you can identify the high-risk patients and high risk of bleeding that you'd like to bring back for early review. In other words, maybe four weeks review rather than four months or six months. You want to bring them back early uh, because we are in the era of electronic health records and electro electronic alerts. And if you categorize somebody as low risk, low risk usually means no action. But if you categorize somebody as high risk, and for example, with a Hasbet score three and above, uh, when you switch on the computer, this red box appears, ping uh, that this patient needs an assessment for their bleeding risk and to address modifiable bleeding risk factors. And the Hasbet score has just recently been um, validated in a large prospective um, study, a trial setting, and it clearly shows that the intervention uh, with proactive management uh, using the uh, risk uh, scores and uh, decision aids and also regular follow-up compared to usual care, bleeding risk was reduced. And in the usual care arm, anticoagulation uh, uh, use was declining over time, like with many other studies, whereas in the intervention arm with proactive management, including using the Hasblad score, uh, in fact, anticoagulation rates increase. So appropriate use of stroke risk scores, appropriate use of bleeding risk scores, you can actually improve patient care and patient management with regard to uh, avoiding stroke, the A of the ABC pathway. Okay, thank you very much, Greg, uh, for, for once again for that comprehensive answer. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope that we, you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other diseases. Thank you once again. <laughs>